You are listening to the Doc Doc Goose Podcast. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of the Doc Doc Goose Podcast. Let me introduce you to the cast of characters we have today. First up, because he's bitter about being last all the time, it's our goose, Matt Ives. Hello. Glad to be second. <laughs> you're, you're, you're first. I give you first. You're no, John first. John <laughs> he did not first. introduce himself. You made it first. Oh damn it. Well, <laughs> glad to be first. Uh, our resident physician and know-it-all, Dr. Benjamin Imes. Uh, I, in this case, I still am a physician, no longer a resident. No, you're resident. I do, like, I do live on like the you podcast. reside on the podcast. You don't I, I live. A resident lives somewhere. You live in America. Not only yes. is he not a resident, he is the official program director of resident. Ooh, ooh. Story that is official. I am contracted and which I feel like that goes right along the 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 line of a know-it-all because you have uh, to know it all to teach these minds full of mush. You know, the nice thing is, is once you make program director, you have to know enough to tell them where to go find the information. Mm. I don't have to know it all anymore. I just say, you know, go ask that person. <laughs> it's nice. It's real nice. Or try it out and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that actually happens. <laughs> and last but not least, mm-hmm. myself, the resident physical therapist, and the other doc, Sean Palmer. That's questionable. Which part? The last but not least part. <laughs> I think that was a compliment. I don't know. <laughs> Today, we have a special bonus episode for you. Oh, it is a topic that we are all so sick of by now, but guess what? It's here with us. It has been. It will continue to be. So we just thought that we should give you some updated information about it. Yes, that is the coronavirus. So a couple episodes ago, we brought to you kind of an intro, let's say, to coronavirus back when it was brand new. I think that was March that we released that episode. And a lot of people are still listening to it. And I kind of feel bad because that information is way outdated now. I kind of want to tell them to stop listening to it, which maybe I should delete it. I don't know. So we thought that we might as well just update the information for you because there is a heck of a lot of information, including misinformation out there. And we're just trying trying to cut through all of it. All right. We have a disclaimer for everybody today. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, Remember that this podcast is for purely educational purposes only. By listening to this podcast and interacting with us on this podcast, it does not establish a physician-patient relationship, a PT-patient relationship, or an architect-client relationship, or a goose-goose-razor relationship, goose-owner. Goose razor? Goose. It, do you duck use collector, that to uh, shave geese? <laughs> a a person goose who raises razor? Goose. <laughs> a goose oh. razor. Yes. Uh, it's kind of, I don't know. Anyway, there's no relationship other than one of educator and educatee. 
Um, also, the uh, the views and opinions and anything else that we say on here does not necessarily reflect the opinions of our respective businesses um, and uh, should not be misconstrued as us representing them. Or, or sometimes us representing ourselves. I know <laughs> I say things that, yeah, just as out of character. Exactly. <laughs> Goose razors, huh? Goose razors. Can you spell razor for me? I'm still trying to figure out what that was about. <laughs> a person who raises a goose. R-A-I-S-E-R-S. Oh, oh, oh. Matt and I were both thinking razor like R-A-Z-E-R. That's how they spell that. R-A-Z-O-R-O-R. I think we were thinking that. I was just making fun, Ben. I didn't really think that. I knew. Oh, yes. You're a very intelligent goose. So for this episode... There is so much out there about coronavirus, so much misinformation. Unfortunately, politics have gotten mixed with medicine on this one, and that is always a dangerous combination. And so everyone spouts off their opinions that most people know zero about, or they share an article that uh, some kid in their basement wrote about what he thinks about a topic, and everyone shares it around like wildfire, like it's fact. Um, and any other scenario under the sun. What we are approaching this here from is the standpoint of here's the medical knowledge that we actually have from reputable sources. And we're kind of going to present just the facts, not a side of it. And there could be some conflicting uh, articles that we bring up where we just kind of lay it in your lap and say, here's what different things say. Figure out what you want to believe maybe, but we're not approaching the standpoint of trying to convince you of anything besides what the right evidence says about it. Ben, you have any, anything else to add to that? Uh, yeah, I think one of the important things to, to remember is that we are recording this podcast on July 18th, 2020. Um, and so we are going to do our best to present the most up-to-date information that we can, uh, but realize that there are studies being published literally every single day. And so by the time this makes it out to you, um, you know, the information will already be at least a couple of days old. Um, and, and so again, this is the most up-to-date information we have, but this is a very rapidly changing scene as far as the information goes. Yeah. So one thing that has evolved in the last couple of months that we did since we did the last episode is that there are some large topics that have emerged. And so that's kind of how we broke down this episode is to look at the large topics that we're wrestling with nowadays and give you the up-to-date information about that. Um, so that's kind of how you're going to be listening for the subjects that come up. With that being said, let's start off with probably the most shared, talked about, argued about, um, videotaped and posted online about and that is the mask situation. Do they work? Do they not? What kind of mask works? What kind of mask doesn't? We will find out. Ben, what did you find? Again, this is a this is a tough one because there's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, you know, there are docs that I work with who fully advocate not wearing a mask. Um, I'll tell you, 
if my family and I go out in public at all, the entire family is wearing a mask. So, um, you know, a couple different places. There was a, an article in the New England Journal of Medicine that was published on April 1st that gets mis, misquoted or actually it's quoted correctly. They just take it out of context. Um, so in that article, this was about universal masking in the COVID-19 area. Uh, again, this was published April 1st. And in that article, they actually say the words, wearing a mask outside of healthcare facilities offers little, if any, protection from infection. And so uh, there are lots of folks who take that one line and just quote it and quote it and quote it. Um, however, if you kind of go back to that paragraph, to that article, and then read the rest of the paragraph that that statement is from, they actually talk about, you know, that that statement is applying only to like a passing encounter in a public space. So, you know, you'll walk by somebody briefly, no big deal. Um, you know, maybe a mask isn't going to help you very much, but anything where you've got sustained contact with anybody, um, a mask decreases the risk of transmission. Um, and so, and they actually, the, the authors of that article that gets quoted out of context all the time, they actually published a letter to the editor to say, Hey, this is not what we wanted the takeaway from our article to be was that don't, don't wear a mask. We, we, we are sad that we put this in here because it gets mis uh, misused so much. We want people to know. And if that, if they read the entire article, there is significant benefit to wearing masks. And you're saying the art, the article says within what six feet of sustained, what is it? What are they saying now? Like 10 minute sustained contact. I, I think, yeah, generally, um, yeah, sustained contact and within six feet of somebody else. So, uh, I don't think in the article, they actually, um, say how long the contact is. They just are saying sustained contact. Um, and so, uh, I think that's really kind of the big thing um, that we're looking at. Now, it doesn't mean that masks are perfect, but they do decrease the risk of infection. So I've heard I've heard something about uh, cotton masks being worse for you. Do you know anything about that? Just in the fact that if you're reusing cotton mask over and over, it kind of becomes some sort of um, health hazard. The bacterial infections are found in lungs, right? They, they linked it back to that. Is that what he's getting at? I have no no idea what I'm getting at. I'm translating for you. It's okay. Oh, thanks. So yeah, you know, and that's the thing is is you want to make sure that you're washing your masks. Um, and so uh, um, there's a couple different ways to kind of do that. Uh, you can, you know put them in boiling water or use a bleach solution to help clean them. Um, but yeah, reusing masks over and over again and not washing them can um, potentially increase your risk for like a bacterial infection. Um, but a mask is better than no mask. What, what about B mask is B mask better than a mask or is a mask the best? Well, you know, and you see, I think that's an excellent question because the B mask is really a full body suit. It's like a B suit, really. Once you go from A mask, you move to B suit. Uh, but, and but, so but, 
Bee's suit usually has air holes so that you don't get too much heat in there. So you exactly. have the heat escape. Yeah, so the bee the bee suit is less uh, good at protecting against COVID. It's better oh, for okay. uh, bees. Oh, that makes yeah. sense. You know, really, I, I'm surprised the research hasn't come around to yet. Is you know those like blow up T Rex uh, outfits that you can wear. <laughs> You you look at those like when it gets hot, the person sweats, whatever. You can see the condensation on that little face mask in front of them. If we all just wore those in public, could we stop this? Can we stop the spread of this thing? I mean, let's be serious for a second. There is no better way to contain an infection than in a T Rex suit. Yeah. You know, the the only trouble is then then we bring evolution back to now we're all dinosaurs again and we saw what happened to the last set of dinosaurs <laughs> uh i think we're just asking for a comet at that point or a meteor or whatever they're called so um I, I, not a bad solution but has its own risks i think i'm just saying let's study it <laughs> okay <laughs> let's study it you know what never mind i'm gonna make up a study i'm gonna post it on facebook and we're just gonna go that way it's believable as some of the studies that I've I've read. So for masks, does material or thickness of it matter? I think that's one thing that that annoys me with all these like mask mandates um, is just that there's no simple and straightforward direction on it that you even see people like, oh, just anything cloth, you know, put it on your face. Well, no, it's not the same. Like you can take aerosol cans and spray them through different materials and you can see the difference between materials. So you can't tell me just put something over your face. Like what guidance is best? What should we be using? Um, if you have X, use that. If you have Y, don't use that. Right. Uh, I think that's a good question. I've got a mask literature review that we'll put in the show notes if, if I haven't put them in already. Uh, remember that the transmission of this is primarily through uh, droplets. And so we're really trying to block droplets with the masks. And so while yes, viral particles can get through that, typically we're thinking that the viral particles need to be um, suspended within a droplet. Um, and so we're really trying to get things that will block that. If you have access to surgical masks or um, or medical masks, those are probably ideal. The general public does not need an N95 mask. Um, and But realistically, just something that covers your face is really going to help block transmission. And if you've got two people who both have their faces covered, or at least their respiratory part of their face is covered, um, then you're really decreasing the chance that a droplet is gonna get through and that um, if something does get through, then it's going to make it through to the other side. Question, just because I see this driving around all the time. If you are driving alone in your car, do you need to wear a mask? I, I'm not entirely sure I understand the question. You see, um, you see, I, it, 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 there's I, the answer. I, because you're looking at me right now like I'm an idiot for asking that question. But you won't believe how many of those I see on the way to work every single day. I'll, I'll tell you, I, it, this happens to me sometimes. Like I'll stop by um, and pick up a uh, drive-through on the way to work. And so I'll put my mask up when I'm, you know, interacting with the person to get my, my, uh, you know, bagel Starbucks. or whatever I'm getting. 
We are not endorsing Starbucks. However, Starbucks, if you'd like to sponsor us, you are more than welcome to. Sorry, continue. Good point. Good point. Uh, but as I drive away, I'll have the mask on and I'll forget about it uh, until I'm like halfway to work and I'm like, wait, why, why do I have this mask still on? And I'll pull it down. So, uh, you know, sometimes it's probably just people like me who uh, forget about what they're doing. Sometimes I go to the restroom and forget to pull up my zipper. So similar. I think that's a good point, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. As you just kind of forget about the clothes that you're wearing and the accessories that you got on. Uh, excellent point, Matt. Yep. This, yep. The zipper comparison, I think, is very perfect. <laughs> the, the other day I was driving and and there was this this car that on the back window, it said, say no to 5G. And as I got up closer, you know, fur further along the side of the car, this person was wearing a full-on painting respirator while driving, like the two big like cylinders on each side, filters, no one else in the car. I'm like, that person is safe. While driving. They ain't yeah. catching nothing. Now, was, I, was he a painter? Did you look at the side of the car? And said, Steve's painting service. I'm not even sure if it was a he or a she, quite honestly. Uh, uh, that's so true. Much hard. Be hard to uh, I'll tell you the one thing about masks is the, there's these masks out there that have like little filters in them, usually off to the side um, by the mouth part, where when you breathe out, those filters actually push away from the mask. Um, and so they're not filtering the air that you breathe out as much. And then when you breathe in, those filters suck in um, and they filter the air coming in. And so those are good to protect yourself, but they're not as helpful for protecting other people. Um, and so that's kind of something you want to watch out for is when you're getting these masks with built-in filters, that the filters stay in place and aren't moving around. Another question about masks that uh, let's say I have, and I've seen some videos of is um, if it's causing a desaturation in oxygen levels at least certain ones. I know there, there's some that depends on what type it is, how it's worn, et cetera. Have you seen any reputable information that would say it's causing desaturation? Uh, right. Uh, this is a big one <laughs> that's happening a lot right now where people say, oh, I'm rebreathing in my, my carbon dioxide significantly, right? And um, no, there's, there's no actual studies that show this. I have patients who, you know, run on treadmills with their their masks, no, no desaturation of the oxygen. Um, you know, surgeons operate for eight to 12 hours, no desaturation, they do fine. Um, so there's no good evidence that this is causing any sort of uh, hypercapnia, which means you've got too much carbon dioxide on board, or hypoxemia, where you have not enough oxygen. Um, there's just no good evidence. Most likely what's happening is maybe a little bit of a claustrophobia or panic attacks when you uh, are getting this on and you just kind of feel that urge to breathe rapidly, but no pathologic or pathophysiologic changes are happening. Good to know. Uh, Matt, any other mask questions that you have? Are, are masks mostly being pushed for the reason of transmittance or of stopping stopping from does it protect the wearer or yeah, other people does it, yep exactly it's a little bit of both right so um the more that we can get everybody to mask up the better everybody's protected right so 
if if you sneeze on my face and neither of us has a mask on, it's I'm not going to be happy with you, right? If you how, sneeze, how often does that happen? No. I, no, th- I'm just saying this is an example here. Okay, this is an example. If you sneeze on my face and I'm wearing a mask, when you have yeah. kids, it happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. If you've got kids, you know about this. If I've got a mask on and you sneeze on my face, uh, I may get a little bit of of stuff on me, and I'm not going to be happy. But if you've got a mask on and I've got a mask on and you sneeze, I'm not going to oh. notice. Okay, so no. it's really to protect both sides. Yeah, but it's going to be a mess in my mouth. That's fine. I don't care about that. <laughs> Wash your mask. My mask. That's the goal. Yeah. yeah. Not my mouth. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Depends on how weirdly you sneeze. Um, so it's it's to protect both both people. Um, there is uh, certainly a possibility of what we call asymptomatic transmission. So people who don't know that they have the disease because they're not showing any symptoms yet, they can still transmit the disease. Um just through their normal coughing or sneezing or even talking, especially talking loudly. It's a great way to transmit it. Um, and so uh, to protect everybody, everybody should wear a mask. And that was actually a perfect segue into the next topic. And that is asymptomatic spread or transmission. Um, we, we know these story. We hear, we hear it like that there could be 10 times the number of asymptomatic people out there than symptomatic. Um, again, this is the CDC saying that. Um, the CDC also then came out one day, CDC or the head of the WHO? I can't remember. Um, they came out, I think there's someone in, the, in the, the World Health Organization came out and said um, they can't find much evidence of asymptomatic transmission. But then the next day they walked that back and said, well, we're talking about pre-symptomatic. I'm a little confused by that. If you are asymptomatic, at what point do you go from pre-symptomatic to asymptomatic? I'm a little confused on that one. So can you you shed a little light on on that issue of if asymptomatic carriers can actually spread it and how often they're being seen to do that? Uh, Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, You know, how do we how do we define somebody who is asymptomatic but pre-symptomatic? Somebody who's asymptomatic has the infection, uh, has no symptoms and will not develop the symptoms. Okay, so, you know, Matt's Matt's currently got COVID. He doesn't know, and he's never going to know. Surprise! Congratulations. The only way that we would know is if we found antibodies and that his body is developed against it later. So that would be uh, asymptomatic versus pre-symptomatic um, is somebody who has the infection but doesn't have symptoms yet. They're going to start developing them in the next two to four days. So when you talk about that, just to clarify, are you saying asymptomatic people will not test positive for coronavirus? Uh, They certainly could test positive, but they will not develop symptoms. Okay. But you're saying I may never know if I I was asymptomatic because I'd never get tested because I feel like everything's fine you can be asymptomatic and still get tested and you will most likely come back positive. Um, But a lot of times asymptomatic people aren't even getting tested. And that's really what Mm -hmm. we're looking at is asymptomatic untested people are not going to have symptoms. They won't know versus pre-symptomatic. They're going to start showing symptoms within a couple days. So the, the study, well, what the, what that, who, 
director or whatever it was, was trying to say then is that someone who will go on to develop symptoms before they develop symptoms, they're not necessarily spreading it. No, uh, I think that would be incorrect. The, as soon as you've, you can potentially, uh, sorry. Yes. That's probably what they were saying, but I think that's not what we would hold to at this point. Um, that asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people can still shed the disease and pass it on to people. And that's why we encourage universal masking. 10-4, which that's probably why we're no longer going to stay in the World Health Organization because they say things like that that we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and again, that's the trouble is, is uh, you know, everybody's working with the best information they have and you hope they're giving the best possible information that they have, but it changes so quickly, changes so quickly. Yep. All right. Thank you for that. Let's go over medications that are out there right now. Cause there is so much, uh, that comes in and out. It, really most of it is centered around four or five different things, probably three that you'll hear the most about. And uh, another couple stragglers, um, of potential, uh, treatments or anaphylactics. These are probably the prime example of why politics and medicine do not mix because, um, well, I mean, everyone knows about hydroxychloroquine now, whether they did before or not the, the issue let's, let's go, let's say the first one, right? So the issue came up with hydroxychloroquine that president Trump said, you know, he was he had a good feeling about the drug working and everyone went in a firestorm to try to prove that wrong, you know, hoping that was not gonna be right. And then you had article after article trying to say it shows nothing. And there have been articles that show both ways. So let's talk about what we actually know about hydroxychloroquine. Um, do you want to tell us first, Ben quickly, what it is, what it has been used to treat in the past, what we know about the drug? Yeah, so this is a drug that we've used as um, an immunosuppressant drug. So it kind of helps lower the uh, immune response to different conditions. Um, we use it in a lot of autoimmune conditions, so conditions where the body attacks itself. So something like lupus or um, or some uh, autoimmune arthritis conditions. Um, and, and so it's been used kind of off and on for, for a while for that. Um, it's a drug that has potential side effects. Most prominently, um, it can affect the heart. And so it's something that we typically are going to monitor fairly closely um, when we start patients on this medication and continue them with it. So as we talk about hydroxychloroquine, um, like, like you were saying, Sean, there's so much information out there. Uh, initially we were seeing some good results. The Lancet published a big study that said up to, I think it was like up to 30% of people had severe side effects. Then they retracted that study after a bunch of scientists wrote in and said, Hey, your numbers don't actually match up. Um, and so now we're kind of seeing a bunch of different articles coming out with a bunch of conflicting data. Uh, Sean, I know you have this Henry Ford study, uh, in there. Um, that came out and then, and then you put up the other study. Those studies just came out like weeks apart from each other and are both big studies that show conflicting data. 
Right. And so the Henry Ford study was an interesting one. So this is um, uh, the Henry Ford, uh, I think, Medical Center in Michigan. Yep, that uh, was looking at this. Now, they have an actively going study right now that's looking at, um, that's an actually really good randomized controlled uh, study, but we don't have those results yet. They're, they're still working on this study. The study that was published that, you, that you've got linked there um, that showed maybe there's some benefit is what we call a, a retrospective study where they're looking at stuff that has already happened without comparing it to a placebo. So they're looking at people who just got tested. They're not putting doing any randomization. So no, no patients are getting just given, are separated into two groups. They're just looking at all the cases that came through and said, these guys were all treated. Let's just see the outcomes. And so those ones can have, those studies can have some risks of inherent bias, uh, of, of uh, problems with, you are looking at patients and you're saying, okay, well, why did some of these patients get this drug or this combination of drugs, but they didn't get that other one. And we're not comparing apples to apples essentially. Um, and so in their study, they had some, they had some interesting results, some good results where maybe it decreased mortality when you used hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin uh, early on in treatment. And if you kind of tease out the data a little bit, maybe the earlier we start treatment, the better. Um, but again, it's it's very muddy waters with that study. Uh, and it's not something that we should really base any treatment guidelines on. Um, it, at least as, as far as I can see. Uh, and then clinical infectious disease article from July 17th. So this came out yesterday as of when we were recording this. And um, they basically are saying, you know, there's really, there's really no improvement with hydroxychloroquine as of right now, got it here somewhere. Um, as of right now, the current guidelines from the CDC do not recommend using um, hydroxychloroquine in the treatment of uh, COVID. Now is that they're saying that don't, use it or they just aren't recommending anything like there's nothing because i think there's a cdc page that says they're just there's nothing's recommended right now is it which, uh, which way there's nothing going? there's nothing that's super effective so as of june uh hmm. officially june 16th so uh and they are working they're constantly updating this um but they're recommending uh hydrochloroquine or hydroxychloroquine by itself um they recommend against using it Okay. Hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin, they recommend against it. And that was as of again, yesterday, mm. um, unless you're doing a clinical trial. So, um, those, those two, they're definitely recommending against. Okay. Okay. Um, next one is remdesivir. This one kind of a lot was put behind this one too, that this was kind of the hopeful savior that they brought forward this new antiviral, um, which I heard is expensive uh, oh, for man, treatment. So expensive. Um, what are they seeing with that? So that's another good one. Um, this is one that we're still studying. Uh, when it first kind of came out, they, they launched a media blitz that was impressive about how effective this was. And the early studies were not that impressive. Uh, unfortunately, you kind of read through them and you're like, oh, they have a, this giant media blitz about how impressive this is. And it's, it's not that good. 
we're kind of seeing some data coming out a little bit better that um, in patients who have um, who are not on a ventilator, so they don't have mechanical breathing being done for them, uh, they tend to do better with remdesivir. So they um, they have a shortened time to recovery. Okay, so I think it was 11 days versus uh, 15 days. So, and that's in patients, again, who are only on uh, supplemental oxygen or no oxygen. Once you get intubated or you get that uh, put on a ventilator, remdesivir does not seem to be as effective. Now, it, it, all right, this is, is, is the part of the program where I know only as much as any person listening to this, because this is not my area of medicine. Um, so I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna say kind of my what I understand from things, Ben, and you can correct me. Um, there's almost two stages to coronavirus. So if it's gonna hit you um, hard, A is the viral part where the virus is actually building up in your system. B is your body's response to it. So like the inflammatory cascade that comes afterwards. And that's where you get the blood clots, the true breathing problems, all that stuff, right? That's when pneumonia comes in. And so there's kind of two sides of this. So am I correct so far? So far, yeah, you're sounding about right. So I, I guess the question of if it's going to lead to hospitalization or not, isn't it more in just knowing what response your body's going to have to it? Is going to be really lead to if you're going to be bad enough to go to the hospital or not. Right, right. And so yeah. it's it's we don't have a good way to predict this yet still right. um, of, you know, somebody who's going to get sick and then they're re going to recover versus somebody who's going to get sick. And then all of a sudden, yeah, we get this inflammatory, overwhelming inflammatory response where you, um, your body starts shutting down and bad things start happening. Um, and it's hard to predict who's going to have that happen to them. Um, you know, certainly we see things like obesity seems to contribute to that. Um, and that's, that's a very, uh, well, um, at least right now, very well thought out one that that's going to be a, a major risk factor. Um, but a lot of these other ones, we're not really sure. Okay. So then going back to medications like antivirals then, so, um, you know, taking piece uh, part a of our understanding here with the antivirals. And I saw this with some of the hydroxychloroquine studies, I guess, um, is that once you get to the point of um, of hospitalization, so now you're in the inflammatory cascade part of it, an antiviral really is not going to do you any good at that point. It's if they're going to do any good, it would be on the first part of it when the virus is building up in your system. You're trying to stop it from replicating. Would that make any sense? Yes, and I think I think you're exactly kind of right on the money there. That you know some of these people make it to the hospital early on, and they're starting to show early signs of of not doing so well. And so, uh, you know, we have patients at our hospital that aren't requiring that mechanical ventilation. They don't need to be on a ventilator. Um, and so they just need a little bit of supplemental oxygen. They're the ones who are going to do best on the remdesivir. Uh, if they come into the hospital and they need to be on a mechanical ventilator, those are not the ones who are going to do well. Yeah. So remdesivir, and, and again, bring it back. Like I, I read one of the one of the hydroxychloroquine studies early on that 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 said it didn't do anything. But if you looked at like their their patient sets, 
they were all patients that were severe going on ventilation. It's like, well, again, my basic knowledge of the, uh, of, you know, what this actually does in the body. Well, no, duh. They didn't get better at that point. They're, they're kind of past the point of no return. Right. So I guess from right, right. in the same kind of category. Right. And so, you know, if, in the studies that do show positive results with the hydroxychloroquine, which is also called Plaquenil, um, in, in those studies, the earlier we can give the medicine, maybe the better. But again, right now, we don't have the data that's showing it's it's good enough and it's worth some of the risks. Uh, let, can, can we transition over to one of my medications that I, I absolutely love this medication Would just in general, even before COVID. Uh, and now with COVID coming out, this is a medication called dexamethasone. This is a steroid medication. Um, this is... Uh, a medication that we use in the outpatient side to kind of help calm inflammation down. And uh, we've got a link in the article and the uh, show notes um, from the New England Journal of Medicine. And this was published July 17th. So again, very up to date um, that the use of dexamethasone resulted in a lower 28 day mortality in anybody. So people who are needing invasive mechanical ventilation. So they're on a ventilator, they need a breathing help or just oxygen alone. Um, now the people that it doesn't necessarily affect are those who aren't receiving any respiratory support. So if you can breathe just fine, uh, it doesn't really change whether or not you're gonna live. But once you start having that decompensation, dexamethasone seems to be at a fantastic ad uh, addition to the treatment therapy. And a very safe medication, one that we use all the time and we've used for a long time. Right. Reasonably safe. Reasonably safe. Uh, you know, right. all medicine has right. side effect potential, but this one is actually a reasonable safe. Yeah. I use it on the outpatient uh, side of things all the time. And it has a wide array of uses. You know, I even use it on the PT side. We're allowed to use it for something. It, exactly. It's a great anti-inflammatory medication. A lot of times we'll inject it into joints to help with inflamed knees or inflamed shoulders. Um, or we'll give it to people who, uh, you know, have for whatever reason, some uncontrolled, either like allergic response or some sort of inflammation. It's a fantastic medicine. I, I even use it on the architecture side for clients. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, yeah. E every industry really has a little bit of dexamethasone in it. So yeah. <laughs> you, you calms, calms them down. So. Uh, it actually does the opposite. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Did you have anything else with, uh, with Dexa you want to say? No, no. I was ready to transition on, but it sounds like so are you. So am I. Um, the last one that I had on my list, I don't know if you have any different ones on your list, of ones that we kind of hear about not as much, but um, this correlation between zinc levels in the body and, um, and having pro uh, progression of the disease. So I've seen some things that, that show that, that those who have higher levels of zinc, whether they, they're you know, taking it or whatever, have, uh, I don't know what I read is fewer symptoms, less um, propensity to develop severe symptoms or any symptoms at all, um, or to even get coronavirus. Maybe that's a really bad wording of, of, of all of that. What, what do you know about the zinc correlation? You know, uh, it's a tough one. Uh, people have been kind of touting zinc to help with, um, uh, you know, respiratory infections for years now. 
we see that it helps with uh, what we call cilia motility is one of the big things. So cilia are tiny little hair-like projections and they kind of help keep the, uh, the respiratory tract um, mechanically debriding bad things up and out of the body. Um, so that's one of the ways I, I imagine there's probably other ways that can affect uh, things, but a lot of times we'll see, and you'll see this kind of in a lot of different protocols across the country and how they're taking care of their, um, their COVID patients. And so with very little um, uh, side effect or risk to adding these medications on. So zinc at about 75 to hundred milligrams of supplementation per day. Um, vitamin C at about a thousand milligrams per day. So usually that's divided up into two doses and then vitamin D3 uh, at a thousand, anywhere from a thousand to 5,000 units a day. Um, and sometimes we'll see as well. So, um, so zinc, vitamin C and vitamin D are very uh, frequently given as either prophylaxis or at the kind of the first sign of any symptoms um, with very little risk overall to taking all any and all of those. All right. Anything, uh, do you have any different uh, medications on your list that I missed? No, those are really the big ones that kind of are jumping out right now. Um, really the remdesivir, the dexamethasone are probably the two ones that are showing the most promise. Hydroxychloroquine is kind of sitting on the wings waiting for us to make a decision. And we, there's a bunch of studies out there that are just uh, kind of in the process of really looking at this, but we just don't have the data yet. Um, and then vitamin supplementation seems to show some, some mild to modest benefit without a whole lot of risk. Do we know other countries that have dealt with this? And I know some countries were dealt with this a little bit uh, before we did. Is there any common treatment in other countries that they either found a success with or tried and failed? <laughs> no. And again, the nice thing is, is that the whole world really seems to be working on this. And so this is, this is kind of pulling the data from everywhere. So uh, we're getting lots of studies out of China and Italy where we have some of these hotspots. Um, and this is kind of the best consensus that we have so far. Okay. Which leads us into a vaccine. This week, uh, it was announced that Moderna, uh, which is a large um, vaccine or medication distributor uh, in the country, has come out with a vaccine and has progressed to the next phase of clinical trials, which will be in, I think, 30,000 volunteers they're looking for across the country, something like that. Um, but they're saying it showed a good immune response in the people it's uh they've injected with so far what do we know on the vaccine side of it dr imes uh that's a good question N not a lot <laughs> still unfortunately everybody's racing to get a vaccine out as fast as we can we just don't know enough about this disease i think that we're gonna know how effective that vaccine is and and whether or not it's going to be our long-term solution to getting us out of this pandemic. Um, like you said, there's some folks, that, there's some companies out there that have made it into kind of phase three trials where we're really starting to put it into uh, humans and see how well they respond. But we don't have anything ready for prime time yet. So um, right now, 
there's there's conspiracy theories out there that we're not going to have a vaccine until after the election uh, coming up in November. There's conspiracy theory, theories saying, hey, we're never going to have a vaccine or the vaccine is going to uh, make things worse or it's going to be part of the government controlling us. Uh, I don't think I hold to any of those vaccines, right? It's, it's tough to control people with a vaccine. But uh, all that to say, we're not there yet on vaccines. Should they come out with a vaccine that they consider effective, what percent effective do you think we can actually say it could be? Because it's not going to be a hundred percent. Right. You know, the general theory is that I think you need like 94 to 95% people with immunity to have good protective herd immunity. So unless you can get major buy-in for this, it's going to be tough for us to get to the place where we're going to get that herd immunity necessary to kind of keep this at a low level. 95%. That's high. Uh, that's the highest number for herd immunity I've ever heard. Wow. And so, yeah, to your point, you'd have to have pretty much everybody do it and hope that it's really, really effective <laughs> to get there. Right. Right. Uh, you know, when, when we start dropping below, um, again, I don't remember the exact numbers. I think it's below like 87 or 88%. Then you worry about spontaneous outbreaks, um, which is, you know, what happens with like measles and Disneyland and that sort of thing. So. We want to talk to you about an affiliate of ours that we talked to him on episode 16. We talked to Sanjeev Javia. He is the owner of Pros CBD products. I want to tell you they are a phenomenal product. We use them in my clinic. Ben has chewed the gum and he loved it. They're Yippies gum. You can go back and listen to episode 16 about their standards as a company and just to understand what CBD does in general. But let me tell you, I become a believer in some of the CBD products. And I used to be very skeptical about it. Um, people come in and say they use CBD cream. I'm like, good for you. I, I don't care. <laughs> but some of them have really started to change my mind. And the pros creams, especially, now they make creams. They make a, a tincture for like daily immunity. They make uh, nods for uh, helping you sleep better. They make gum. They're yippies. Uh, and then they have gummies as well. I want to tell you real quick about a product that we use at our clinic that is incredible. It's called Nerve. So it's a topical uh, pain relieving cream. I had this patient that I was treating him for one thing. He started talking to me about uh, a plantar fascia pain he had on the other foot. He says like eight out of 10, he can barely walk some days. And we just didn't have time to get into that injury that day. And I was like, you know what? Let's put a little bit of this nerve on it and just see if that helps take some of the edge off. Let me tell you, he walked back through the doors of the clinic two hours later to buy a bottle of it because he said he didn't have any pain. Wow. I happened wow. to be at the front. I'm like, you're kidding, right? He said, no. I woke up this morning with eight out of 10 pain. You put the cream on, and I really haven't felt it since then. I can't explain that, except it worked for some reason. <laughs> and, yes. and he's still putting that on and still isn't having a problem with his plantar fasciitis. And we're not talking about he just woke up that day in like momentary pain. He'd been struggling with that thing for weeks. That's impressive. I, I don't even believe it. I yeah, still don't believe is. it. But he's a believable guy. He, was, he wasn't BSing me. <laughs> right. So let me tell you, this nerve product is phenomenal. That's and great. you can get your own. So pros is spelled P-R-O-Z-E. You can go to pros.com. You can use our coupon code DDG 
that's DDG15, to get 15% off of the products. Now, we have five gift cards worth $20 for five listeners. Now, it's $20 off of an order of $70 or more. But CBD products aren't cheap. So you get like one or two things and you're already at 70 bucks. But this is $20 off of that. So we'll give that to the first five listeners who either email us at contact at ddgpodcast.com or who get a hold of us on our social media channels and ask for it. We have five codes. We will give you those codes while the supplies last. We're also going to be giving away a bottle of that magic cream that I just talked about, Nerve. Watch our social media for that. We're going to be giving it away that way. So jump on our Twitter, our Facebook, our Instagram. It's at the DDG podcast and look for how you can get a hold of that bottle. We're going to be giving away one free bottle. I think it's a $90 bottle, quite honestly, or 70. It's expensive. This is a good thing to get for free. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. Pros.com. Or you can get links through our website at ddgpodcast.com. We have banners up there. You can find it. Use code DDG15 for 15% off. All right. Going to another topic, breakdown of risk by age. So we hear all the time that kids are not susceptible to this. We know that following the signs that those older, what did you call them last time, septuagenarians, um, mm-hmm. they are most... Uh, susceptible to not only getting it, but getting a bad reaction to it. According to a CDC paper that was published July 10th, this is an update that they had to it. Um, The median age of death for COVID, either of you have a guess at what it is right now? Um, 55. No, it's going to be higher than 60, probably 67. I changed 68. <laughs> so <laughs> they get median, not mean. So median mean half of those who died are going to be above this age and half are going to be below this age. 78 Whoa. is the median age of death. Statistically, those, so breaking down our population, 7% of our population is above 75 years old. 93% of our population is below 75 years old. 78% kind of funny enough is the statistical life expectancy for us right now. Interesting. Um, so when you break down that number, really half of the deaths have occurred in each of those two age groups. Half of the deaths so far have occurred above 78 years old and half have occurred below 78 years old. That helps you separate out kind of the risk and percentages in the country. I heard another breakdown that said like, 50 at one point, I think it was when we were about a hundred thousand deaths, 50% of the deaths came from those over 65 years old in assisted living facilities. Another 25% came from those over 65, 65 years old outside of assisted living facilities. And everyone else made up 25% of the deaths. I don't know if you've heard a different breakdown than that. So anyway, the, the median age of 78 years old just came out in a CDC paper published July 10th. They've had one update since then. I just started to go through that update. In kids, obviously, they're finding out that they it, it does not hit them nearly as often or as bad, and they don't really understand that. Um, so they're they're working vigorously to try to figure that out. 
Um, from what I've heard, at least, uh, Dr. Ams, I'm sure you have a, a, a more in-depth view from what I've heard. Any kids who have who have tragically died from this to this point have been have had multiple comorbidities, like they were severely severely compromised anyway. Like it's not a healthy child that gets this and has passed away. Yeah, I, I think that would be a very rare kind of case. I haven't, again, like you said, I haven't read of any case reports where it's been a healthy child. Um, and even with that healthy child is somebody under 17. But yeah, it's, it's certainly the ones with respiratory conditions or immunodeficiencies or severe metabolic disorders. And the, the statistical death rate for those under 17 is like, it's statistical zero. I think what I read is like five out of 100,000 or something like that. Is that about what you've seen? Yeah. And I, as far as I know, I don't, it, and that sounds like the right number. I don't know what the exact number, but it's very, very low. And that just increases incrementally, you know, each decade of life, basically. Exactly. But it's statistically extremely low, below 50, really. Right. Eight out of 10 of our cases, I think the number still is. Um, so eight out of 10 are greater than 65 years old. Yeah. I have the same number. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the trouble is we're seeing sometimes patients who are relatively healthy otherwise, who are younger than 65, who that for whatever reason, they're getting this and it just turns bad on them real bad, real quick. Um, and I've, I've seen it in the hospital. I've seen it in ICU. And it's not, it's not a pretty thing. And that's what makes us so different from everything else that we've got where, um, you know, for the majority of patients, again, under 65, you're going to come out just fine. But for some reason, some people do not come out fine. And we don't have a good way to predict who's not going to come out fine. And uh, I think that's one of the things that makes this so scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I agree. Because uh, from some of the stats we have, like, the vast majority of the cases... You know, so they found that over 75% of those who died had at least one underlying medical condition. 50% had two or more underlying medical conditions, which they, which they stated as, you know, obesity, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, uh, end stage renal failure or a neurological disease. But like you said, then there's those random one-offs where you're like, why did that person get hit so hard? Like I, I know somebody that's like that, that there's no underlying conditions, no reason, healthy individual, strong, and, you know, we're end up being put on a ventilator, ECMO. Thankfully, this person tur miraculously turned around when they didn't think he was going to. That's great. But you just don't know. Now, obviously, those cases are very rare, but still, you don't, you just don't know. Yeah, exactly. And they're, they're common enough, unfortunately, that, um, that it, it, I think it still strikes fear into everybody's heart when they first get that diagnosis of COVID. Yeah. Regardless of age. Yeah. You know, I think as we kind of talk about that, you know, we're starting to see a lot more of our younger folks getting the disease. Um, and that's those are college age and young adults. So that 20 to 35, 40 um, age where they're maybe not taking the precautions as seriously. Uh, they tend to have a little bit of a lighter course and a shorter hospital stay. Um, but it's still not unheard of for them to end up in the hospital on a ventilator. Now is a good, good time to ask this question because uh, there's debate about what 
the best way forward for the country is knowing that there is not, and I'm not asking you to make a decision for the country, by the way. Um, it's a little above our pay grades, um, maybe, but, maybe. but it's an, an intriguing idea, I guess, that, that without a good therapy out there, without a vaccine, which neither of those are guaranteed in any way, shape or form, wouldn't it make sense that really you want those younger people to get infected and at higher rates to some degree if you're able to protect the older generations because that is how you're at least going to get closer to herd immunity yes i understand the philosophy behind that i you know uh if we can get enough of the younger people infected they can develop immunity and then you know we're not risking everybody with the spread so if we can get them all infected early and make sure they're not preventing it uh giving it to other people wouldn't that be a great thing um the, the concern is though we've got a couple of concerns there one we're still not doing a very good job of protecting our older population and so uh pretty much there's daily news reports of yeah these you know kids are going out they're getting infected and then they're giving it to their parents or their grandparents and so uh if we could somehow limit that interaction maybe the other concern is and we don't have good studies on this yet because of how new this disease is is does infection give you immunity in the future right and so there's some conflicting reports coming out of china right now of people who have previously had the disease and are now getting reinfected hmm. um, and so that's kind of one of those concerns uh, i was reading today again these are all kind of individual case reports so this isn't a study yet and that's the concern is we don't have good data but uh, i was reading today about a doc who was talking about one of her patients who tested positive for the antibodies, which means her, her patient had the disease, developed an immune response to it, and was protected against it. Three months later, her antibodies tested negative. Mm. So, uh, you know, if you do you have, how long do you have immunity is really the concern uh, if you even do get immunity. So I think that's why we're not trying to get as many people as infected as impossible at this time, as, as possible at this time, because we just don't know if it's going to be protective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The concerns. Yeah. We, yeah. At some point we want to talk mm -hmm. about, you know, uh, return to sports and maybe even kids. Let's do it. The re return so to return sports. To sp and I think, I think if we're talking about just sports in general, uh, you know, I think all the different sports groups are trying to figure this one out. We're starting to talk about the sports bubbles and if it is possible. Yes. So we see the NBA doing this right now, uh, MLB to some extent, but mostly the, the NBA trying to do the bubble scenario right now. What do you think about this? You know, I think, it, I think it's an interesting way to approach it. Um, it, it could, it, it's just an experiment that we're going to see how it works. Uh, my big concern is once we start getting fans back out there, that's when we're going to be really, that's, that's a very dangerous thing. People yelling, screaming, um, you're just projecting all these droplets everywhere. Uh, that's going to lead to a major surge in cases. That's going to make the nosebleed seats, the most sought after seats. Exactly. You're on you're, the high you're, level, you're you're <laughs> spitting down at people instead of being spit on. Exactly. Yeah, you're the safest, the highest up. Exactly. Can go. What? Okay. Uh -huh. What if people go to the sporting events wearing masks? 
Um, again, you know, that's going to be better potentially, but you're still, you have this giant group of people all spitting on each other. Your risk is high for bad things happening. But they're wearing a mask. They're spitting on themselves. Yeah. Like we talked about. Exactly. Exactly. But the more droplets that you're exposed to, it's just a number of percentages, right? If you've got one person that you're interacting with and you're actively sneezing on each other through masks, right? It's a low percentage. But if everybody around you is yelling and screaming and projecting all these, all these droplets out there, the percentage is going to go up. I tend to stay away from events where people are spitting on me, quite honestly. You would think so. You would think so. But, you know, and this is, this is goes back to the, uh, this poor case study that we have back in Washington of the choir uh, that were like 80% of the people who were in this choir uh, came down with coronavirus. And I think there were uh, several deaths out of this. It was a terrible story, but um, these, this choir of like, uh, I'm going to butcher all the numbers. It was like 53 people in the choir and it was just all them singing. And because of that singing, they're just projecting droplets out and 80% of them got infected. And so they weren't wearing masks at the time. I know you're about to ask that they weren't wearing masks. But they weren't actually like, you know, taking turns, you know, drinking out of the same cup or like licking door handles or anything weird like that. Right. It was just the singing. And so uh, very comparable to what people are doing in sports stadiums and cheering and yelling. I very vaguely remember that story. Did they did they know how many were infected going into that? I think it was like maybe one person infected. So it wasn't like half of them were infected. And it was an asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic person at that time. So, hmm. so uh, that that's kind of going to be my big concern is participation in being a part of a crowd. Not just with the bubble situation, but all the rules and stuff that we come up with that really think that that it's going to help anything whatsoever. Um, and, and coronavirus has been a, a fascinating study in in people using knee-jerk reactions to put the dumbest guidelines and rules out there that really are probably worse for you than anything. Um, but they, for some reason, thinks it, think it helps. So like with the NBA, I'm thinking about this. And so here's what, what, why I bring that up. So the NBA in their health document, their rules say, okay, so you're playing normal play, run up and down the court, breathing heavy, yelling, rubbing up against each other, whatever. But do you think they're allowed to play doubles ping pong? No, they are not because your risk of infection spreads. Hold on, hold on. So you can go play alongside that person at court that night and it is what it is, but don't you dare play ping pong next to that person within six feet when you get back to the room, because that makes sense. Perfect sense. Right, <laughs> right. I, I mean, again, there, I, I <laughs> it's, it sounds ridiculous on the surface and I kind of agree with that, I, that, you know, it's, it's a little ridiculous, but at the same time, they're trying to mitigate risk, right? So they've got to have this playing time or the, if you don't play, then you've, you've got, you're not doing anything. Right. So they have to have the playing time. It's just, so they know that they've got that set period of risk. They're just hoping the other 23 hours, 22 hours of the day, they're going to mitigate that risk as much as possible. I, I get it. I get it. It sounds a little stupid. I understand what they're trying to do. I, I don't know. We're going to see it. It's, it's an interesting experiment that all these, uh, all these people have signed up for. Do you, do you hear about the snitch line that the NBA has and how that's working? <laughs> so they're no, is it working well? <laughs> they're catching people left and right. These players going out to get their, their taco bell or whatever. And so snitch lines has someone, 
Uh, yes, what is your emergency? Yeah, uh, Dwayne just went out to get Taco Bell. He left the bubble. Oh, <laughs> quarantine him. Dwayne left Come the bubble. On. All the time. Oh. <laughs> so there are some funny articles oh. written about the snitch line and <laughs> what complaints are getting about each other. It's pretty funny. Yeah, I, I imagine, you know, it's. I think they're going to have troubles enforcing this bubble and these young, extremely wealthy um people infuriates I, me I, you have one job to do we put you in grand accommodations that 98 percent of the people cannot afford to go into and all you have to do is live in these luxurious accommodations and then go play your game and get paid way right. more for it than you should that's all you have to do right. if you can't abide by that right. i'm i'm sorry i don't know what i got for you <laughs> exactly you're a worthless human exactly. being at that point uh, i'm gonna throw you throw it out that far if you can't abide by these simple things uh, that was that was harsh you're not a worthless yeah. human being oh yeah but i'm just sick of hearing the uh, sports center debate about this stuff every single day like this is important <laughs> right it's you know the until un until we can actually get real sports on tv <laughs> they're not gonna have anything else to talk about though so um the last one, and this is probably the, the most recent controversy because this one is coming up a lot on the news in anticipation of kids going back to school. When can we send the kids back to school, right? Again, we're going to do our best not to make this political. In Arizona, where I'm currently practicing at, they've pushed uh, school for public schools, the start date back to August 17th. Um, I don't know how long that's going to hold. I, I'm wondering if that's going to get pushed back further. Um Depending on who you talk to, they are going to say that's a good thing versus that's going to be a bad thing. Um, you know, Sean, I think you had a, a news program that was surprising to you that you saw. So on NBC uh, this last week, they they brought in five physicians from across the country. Most of them were infectious disease, like the heads of infectious disease at their hospital. And... I think NBC brought them in more to prove NBC's point is saying that, that schools should not go back in session. And all these physicians said, no, we unequivocally want our kids back in school. There, there's no reason they shouldn't be, um, which surprised NBC, I think, with that. Um, what I tried to find coming to today, and I couldn't find it, is I know there are case studies of at least four countries who have already put their kids back to school within the last several months. I think in May, most of these started. So it was China, South Korea, Netherlands, and I can't remember the fourth country. Um, and each of those countries show no increase in spread with the kids fully back at school. And from what I hear, it's not like we're talking about like, like decreased numbers or anything like all kids fully back to school. I don't know if they're wearing masks or not. I think some from some of the pictures I saw, especially knowing like China and South Korea, they probably were in masks, but um, not a whole lot of other mitigations. Um, but they've seen no increase in community spread with these kids going back to school. I, I, I tried to find that article. Like I said, I could not find that. Um, but I know it's been a more recent development as well. Ben, what are your thoughts about kids in school from what you have seen or read so far? You know, it's something that our my family is is actively working through. Um, you know, we've got three small children all in grade school uh, trying to decide, um, is it worth the risk? And I think, unfortunately, the numbers don't help us right now. We, we, we don't know. 
Um, there are a lot of physicians out there on different physician uh, social media groups that I'm a part of where they're saying that we're not sending our kids back. We're not sending our kids back yet. We don't know enough. Um, we haven't made that decision yet, like I was saying, but um, uh, I think there's certainly a risk to sending the kids back, right? That they are going to spread this more, but uh, we don't know. We don't know. And it's going to be um, uh, a tough thing to kind of figure that out. So, yeah, that's no, definitely a personal decision and um, not an easy one, I guess. Mixed in with it, with all the rest of the coronavirus stuff, I guess the, the big thing that I hear debated back and forth too, is kind of what's worse, the risk of, um, the kids contracting COVID and maybe even having a, a dangerous course of it or all the other things like, you know, right. mental issues, um, socialization issues, um, even the kids that, that they get their, not only counseling, but even nutrition from school. Um, you know, so I guess what the countries that deal with across the board is, I guess, weighing all the issues, not just coronavirus mitigation, but all the things that it causes outside of that, you know, from locking people down or whatever, um, you know, always have to be considered going back to school, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's certainly developmental and social impacts of, of not being in school. Uh, it's just, yeah. What's the risk to everybody around them as this, as this keeps going on? Is this going to be getting worse? So yeah, what one interesting thing, and I don't, I there's no article behind this. I'm wondering if you've heard anything different. What's interesting is that that from the beginning, like in in March, you know, there have been certain daycares that have been open for first responder kids and whatnot, and I've never seen anything about an outbreak from any of those, which would be an interesting case study that we've had here in the U.S. I have not heard yeah. that. Have you? I have not heard that either. I have not heard that either. And so I think that's an interesting thing. And I, I wonder if we've got anybody kind of looking at that and studying those numbers. Hmm. Uh, as far as I know, we don't have any results on that yet. Yeah. Even on my own kids daycare, I know, cause they're way on top of this stuff and they, they're doing lots of mitigation stuff coming back, but they've never had an increase in stuff so far. I mean, hopefully it's good news. That's all I'm saying is hopefully it's good news. I'm not trying to, to persuade anybody either way. Um, but hopefully there's some glimmers of hope that that's, that wouldn't be that big of an issue. But right. we don't know. It's a personal decision for each family to make uh, for your kids. And it's hard to say, you know, at the end of the day, what risk you want to put your kids in and what you feel is out there. That is the end of our big topics. Um, unless there's something else that you wanted to voice, either Ben or Matt. Matt, what are you thinking over there? Just soaking it all in. There's, there's lots of info and um, I am not the one to be speaking on this for sure. Well, this is what I'm curious about now. Now, I don't know, Matt, have you and Ben spoken much about this? Okay. Nope. Because I've only talked to Ben on, on very few occasions. That's what's kind of fun about this episode is I, I didn't know what, what viewpoint anyone's coming from. That's kind of like we said at the beginning. That's how it should be that no one has this, this opinion going in to say, uh, 100%. This is how it is because we're just leading by medicine and, and what what research says. Matt, just from your experience watching the news, hearing things day to day, sum up for us your feelings about what what's happening in the country right now with coronavirus. What what do you think it is? How big of an issue? Um, how scared are you of it? 
so I used to engage in the news quite a bit early on. I think, like most people, just curious about uh, the unknown and what's happening. Now, um, I'm pretty sick of hearing about it just because nobody really knows what's going on. So like you said before, Sean, it has turned into more of a political agenda where no matter which news station you go to, there's always a side they're trying to push or an argument they're trying to make. And so um, for me now, I don't really care to listen to anything about it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my stance on it. Um, as far as the what I'm doing towards it is just following regulations. So uh, when the governor says, hey, you need to wear masks when you go out or if you're in public places, I comply, do that. Um, but as far as it disrupting my life, I'm trying not to have it disrupt things too much. So I want to take a careful approach to it, but at the same time, not be scared of it. So I think that's something both my wife and I have talked about that we're on the same page with is, hey, we don't want to make this worse. And but we also aren't going to be living in fear and just be scared of what's going on. We need to keep going about our lives, but stay safe. Yeah. It's a good take home. I think just, you know, from me talking personally, we'll see Ben's, Ben's view as well. Like, okay. I'm, I'm 36 years old. I, like we talked about, there are random cases that get really bad. I'm not fearful of the disease for me and for my family. I just don't think the numbers are there. I don't think the stats are there to tell me I need to live in fear, need to, to respect that there are this and other viruses out there that, that, you know, that aren't as common, but that we don't, that we could have a bad reaction to and be fearful of it. I don't want to get sick. I'm not trying to get sick. I'm not going to go out to a COVID party, but at the same time, I'm not living in fear of this. You know, um, I'm concerned for like, if my parents were to get it. So we're, you know, we mitigate every risk with, with, um, and we always have the discussion of what makes sense going around my parents. Uh, my kids are not back in school right now. So we feel like, you know, maybe it's not as big of a risk having them around them because they're not really going anywhere to get sick. But if they were to go to school, okay, then we have a, another thing to worry about is do we bring them around grandma and grandpa? You know, there are risks like that that you think about. So I think the take home for us is that we're smart about it. We want to be educated about it. And uh, we, we are responsible ultimately for our family's risk, but we're not going to be fearful of it. And I think that's the leap that most of this country has made. And the news has definitely not helped that of don't fear it, respect it, do everything you can to stay healthy, just like we always should have done. And most of us are finding out we're bad out as a country anyway, but maybe not fear it. You know, especially if you're in the age groups where that's just not not really warranted, maybe. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I mean, I I want to echo both of what you're saying. Um, you know, for I think all three of us, we have young families. Um, we're not the high risk groups. 
my big concern is transmitting it to those people around me that are high risk. So uh, certainly for me, my patients, I'm very concerned about. I have a lot of older patients, um, but also my, my parents and my grandparents, right? So I'm doing my best to not get it because I'm not worried if I get it. Most likely I'll be fine, but it's if I've got it and then I transmit it. Um, and so that's, that's really my big concern. So, uh, you know, for us, we're doing our social distancing. We are very much isolated in our house. We're not going out and doing restaurant things really at all at this point. Um, and if we do go out, it's mask, 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 and we're washing our hands frequently. So, uh, and, and also really trying to maintain that six feet distancing. Um, and it can be hard on those people that you're around, but that's what we're doing. Uh, I'll tell you the number of times, uh, that people are still trying to shake my hand or they'll come up and try and give me a hug. And I'm like, Whoa, Whoa, you know, we, we don't do that here. <laughs> it's, it's again, it's not not worth the risk in my eyes. So I wrote some quick take home points, um, just that I have observed about, uh, kind of this country going through this. Um, then tell me what you guys have to add on this as well. Take home points. We learned about this. Number one, we are an unhealthy nation and there's statistic after statistic that can show that from obesity and whatever else. And our stats are bad to begin with, but then something like this just accentuates that. Cause if you look at down the risk factors of who this really hits besides just being old, the elderly, it, you could just run down the risk factors of all the things that we can prevent as a nation that we've done a pretty bad job of. We, we just need to, to have a better focus on preventative health in our country so that we don't, when a situation comes like the, like this comes about, it shouldn't be as big a deal because we shouldn't have as many people that are at big risk factors for it. Right. Number two, when politics gets involved in medicine, it's always a bad thing. Um, <laughs> and this is the best case study for that you could possibly get, um, from several factors of it from, you know, the, the <laughs> your, your view of the president and what is said there coming into, into effect to listening to different media outlets and their different views of it to even locally, you know, local politicians, like our, our governor saying the physicians can or cannot use a certain medication. I know Ben's going to agree with me. That has no, that has no place in medicine. The decisions are between the physicians and the research they see in the patient. That's it. There shouldn't be another 100%, 100%. level. 100%. Number three is people need to quit making their decisions and their views based off what they see on social media. The vast majority of it is absolute oh. crap and is crap being shared upon other crap and people wanting to put their crap opinions on top of it. People, it is okay to see something you disagree with and just keep scrolling on and not say anything, not start an argument with somebody especially about something like this. If you haven't paid attention, the research changes daily. No one has any clue. So don't get in arguments with someone, not talk to a family member for the rest of your life because you wanted to argue about masks with them. Right. <laughs> I see it all the time. I just, I just shut, I shut Facebook off most days. I just, I can't do it anymore. I'm sick of it. I agree. So those I are agree. my take on points. You guys have anything to add to that? No, my big thing, mask up, wash your hands. If you can do those two, two things, uh, world will be a better place. <laughs> no hugs? No, please. Stop hugging people. Oh. <sighs> I don't like people in my bubble anyway. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, hopefully you learned something through this. Maybe we even learned something through this. Uh, thank you, Dr. Rimes, for your wealth of knowledge. Matt, thanks for being here. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for being a goose. My pleasure. Hong thank Kong. You. Hong Kong. Like I said, this is bonus special episode we threw in. So next time we're coming back with health articles again. Don't worry about that. And I'm sure we're saving up some good ones for you. Yeah, we are. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again real soon. I am Sean Palmer signing off. I am Dr. Benjamin Imes, your friendly neighborhood physician, signing off. Ta-ta. Thank you for listening to the Doc Doc Goose podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave a review to help others discover us. Visit our website at www.ddgpodcast.com to read the show notes, blogs, view videos, and interact with the cast. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the DDG Podcast. If you have an Apple device, you can easily access the podcast by saying, Hey Siri, play the Doc Doc Goose podcast.